0: Good afternoon. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we'll be reading and studying verses 11 to 32. And this is the well known parable of the prodigal son. So, Luke chapter 15, and we'll start at verse 11. I'd like to say, just by way of introduction, there were two sources that were particularly helpful to me. Um, The sermons of Benjamin Keach, he's a particular Baptist on on the prodigal son, as well as the writings of Dr. Barcellus, who we all know, on interpreting parables. And so, um, up front, credit goes to where credit is due. And by way of introduction, I want to go over two things. The first is, what are parables? Just a quick review. Well, parables are either sayings or stories that Jesus told, and they're usually easy to understand on the surface level, but within they contain truths about the kingdom of God, sometimes hard to understand. Benjamin Keech wrote that parables make use of natural ways by use of illusion or comparison to open spiritual things to our understanding. Another way to say this is that parables use metaphors to teach theology. They're not just universally true um, sayings, because Jesus uses the parables to announce the kingdom and also what he came to do on this earth. And the purpose of parables is really to open up to us the great doctrine of the gospel. The second thing is, what is the context of this parable? If you go back to the very first verse of chapter 15, we see that um, Luke tells us that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus and that Jesus was welcoming them. And this caused the Pharisees and the scribes to grumble. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus responds to this accusation by telling three parables. All three parables are very similar and they are a defense that Jesus gives to his receiving and welcoming the sinners and the tax collectors. You can see the parable of the lost sheep. That's the first parable. There's 99 sheep that are safe, but one goes astray. And so the shepherd goes and finds that lost sheep. And once he finds it, he returns home and he gathers everybody and says, Let's celebrate. We've, I've found the lost sheep. And Jesus says in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Then we have the parable of the lost coin. A woman has ten coins, she loses one, she looks all around, she sweeps the house, she finds the lost coin, and when she does so, she celebrates. She, calls, she asks everyone to come and celebrate with her. And Jesus says in verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we have the parable of the lost son, or as we'll see later, the parable of the lost sons. And in this parable, there's a very similar thing. There's something that is lost, and this lost thing or this lost son is found. And so what's kind of our main thesis or or theme for our sermon is this. Jesus came to seek and save not the self-righteous, but the lost. Jesus came to seek and save not the self righteous, but the lost. And I realized in preparing this sermon that you could preach many sermons from this. Uh, Benjamin Keats preached nine sermons from this one parable. However, we're going to look at the, the major teaching of Jesus seen in this parable. Today we have three points, and we'll have some application under each point. Let's look at the first point the descent of the prodigal the descent of the prodigal this is verses 11 to 16. the description of the prodigal's actions resembled a spiritual descent we see that without delay the prodigal pursues the pleasures of the world if you look in verse 12 the prodigal demands his share of the father's inheritance now according to deuteronomy 21 the firstborn would usually receive two-thirds of the inheritance the younger son, in this, in this situation, there's two sons, so the younger son would receive a third. And so that's probably what he's asking for. And he tells his father what to do. He demands, give me my share of the inheritance. He might as well have said, I wish you were dead already so I could have your money. And what a grief the son was to his father. But this is just the beginning of the descent. In verse 13, he gathers all and he journeys towards a far country. He gets as far away from his father. Is far away from the authority and the morality of his father's house, and he lets loose. And there in the far country, the prodigal squandered his property in reckless living. The word squandered is also used in the New Testament to refer to a flock of sheep scattering. Um, he scattered everything that he had. You can think if you've ever seen a, a planet Earth or something, and you see a flock of animals and a wolf approaches, and they go in all directions, And that's what the prodigal is doing with his resources. He's squandering his property. And what did he spend it on? It says reckless living. Um, This word could also be said as debauchery. Uh, We heard this term recently in Pastor Sam's sermon in 1 Peter Peter 4, um, when Peter says, Do not be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The prodigal was neck deep in sin, In the far country, and so we see, without hope, the prodigal the prodigal soon found himself poor, hungry, and unsatisfied. In verse fourteen, the prodigal he spent all he had seeking pleasure in the far country, and he ended up with nothing. After this self wrought affliction, another affliction comes upon him: a famine, a severe famine, comes upon the land. And in verse 15, it tells us the prodigal was so destitute that he hired himself out to a citizen who sent him to feed pigs. Uh, the Jewish audience of this parable would have thought immediately, he must have been really destitute to, in order to do that, for pigs were unclean animals. And so we've seen the prodigal hurry to a far country. He descended spiritually. He's indulged all his senses. He's lost all his money. He's poor. He's hungry. He's unsatisfied. And in verse 16, his hunger becomes so great, he even, out of desperation, wants to eat the, the food that the pigs eat. And the word literally is the carob pods, which is a tree. It's kind of a seed or a pod from a tree. This was inedible for humans. And he's even wanting to eat this inedible food. The last phrase, and no one gave him anything, that's not referring to the food of the pigs. That's You could say, additionally, no one gave him anything. This far country was a cruel place. And the prodigal had attempted to live his life to the fullest. He had spent all he had on the pleasures of the world, and he ended up miserable and in great despair. As it says in Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace for the wicked. Now imagine Jesus telling this parable. At this point, the Pharisees would have been nodding. What a sinner. Those tax collectors, they're just like this prodigal. They would have been thinking, that's right, these sinners are filthy and disgusting and hopeless. But our Lord has more to say in this parable. I had two applications from this first point of the descent of the prodigal. The first application, number one, is this Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. Satan presents the bait. And hides the hook. That's obviously from Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. The prodigal was enamored with the idea of pleasure and a total abandon of morality. And he hastened to enjoy it. But he ended up miserable, unsatisfied, and lost. Satan will tempt people with pleasure. And to their eye, it seems happy and exciting. But the result is shame and confusion. Thomas Brooks writes, he presents the bait and hides the hook. The world presents profit and pleasure, and by the glistering of her pomp and preferment have slain millions. Adversity hath slain her thousand, but prosperity her 10,000. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, do we desire the far country? In our hearts and our minds, do we secretly desire it? even if we would never say that. Are we tempted by wicked curiosity to imagine ourselves in the far country? We must remember that Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. This is what happened to the prodigal. And you may ask, how can we avoid this device of Satan? We must keep sin at a distance. Don't let it get near you. Don't entertain it in your minds or you will fall. Remember that sin itself is deceitful. What seems happy and pleasurable for a time will usher in great darkness and loss. Remember the deceitfulness of sin. As John wrote, do not love the world or the things of the world. The second application, number two, those who are unregenerate are dead and lost in their sins. Those who are unregenerate are dead and lost in their sins. Later on in the parable, the Father gives a clear picture of the spiritual state of the prodigal look at verse 24 he says for this my son was dead and he also says he was lost as we have seen this description of the prodigal descending in the far country we see him in the state of spiritual death he is driven and controlled by his desires he is in bondage to others his life is a cruel existence he despairs he sees no escape And as we read in the scriptures, this is the case of all those who are outside of Christ. Paul speaks in this manner in Ephesians 2. And I can't can't help but imagining the prodigal in the far country as, as I read this. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I ask you today, children or family members or visitors, if you're here and you're outside of Christ, you are in the far country and you are spiritually dead. Well, this parable will offer wonderful relief for your condition. And so we have studied, number one, the descent of the prodigal We've seen the nature and the character of sin pictured here in the descent of the prodigal. We saw that without delay, he pursued the pleasures of the world, and he ended up totally unsatisfied and miserable and in despair. And we see that Satan, and we saw that Satan traps people by presenting the pleasures of the world, but hiding the cruel nature of sin, and that those who are unregenerate are spiritually dead. The second main point is this, the deliverance of the prodigal. The deliverance of the prodigal. This is seen in verses 17 to 24. Verse 17 tells us that the prodigal came to himself. The same phrase is used in Acts 12 when Peter is brought out of the prison by the angel and he thinks he's having a vision, and then it says he came to himself. See, the prodigal awoke as of out of a dream or out of a trance, he came to himself, he saw the world and his own condition for what it really was. This is the beginning of his repentance. We then hear his inner dialogue. He contemplates what he has given up and what he has gained. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He also understands his sin was not just against his father, but against heaven. That's a way of saying God. His sin was against God. He understands he's no longer worthy to be called a son. And then he tries to think of a way to pay back his father. Maybe I'll become one of his hired servants and pay back this debt that I have caused. And then the reaction of the father is very well known to us, and rightly so. He sees his son while he's a long way off. He was looking out for him. He saw him and he felt compassion. He ran and embraced and kissed him. His reaction, as if, as if someone that you thought was dead, appeared alive on your doorstep. He ran to him. In verse 21, the prodigal tries to repeat his rehearsed apology. He says it word for word, but he doesn't get all the way through it. He says, I have sinned. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't. he's not able to finish. He's cut off. The father... And uh, the father immediately commands his servant to clothe his son with the best robe and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And he orders the, the fattened calf, which was kept for only special occasions, to be killed so that they could have a great feast. And then they have a great party in honor of his son. And why does the father celebrate like this? We see in verse 24 For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. That's a great verse. And so what are some applications from this second point, the deliverance of the prodigal? Number one, the Holy Spirit uses affliction and conviction to lead sinners to repentance. The Holy Spirit uses affliction and conviction to lead sinners to repentance. You see, in the far country, the prodigal hit rock bottom. And this led him to come to himself. As out of a dream, he saw things as they really were. He realized how great his sin really was. And it wasn't just against his father, but against God. He realized his unworthiness, and he did not deserve his father's favor. And doesn't that describe some of our testimonies, brothers and sisters? We were woken up almost out of a dream and saw things for how they really were and the true nature of our condition. And we can see this pattern of God bringing great affliction upon people in order to wake them up, which causes conviction of sin. Through the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, God draws poor and wretched sinners to himself. And we have to remember, it's not by some amount of guilt for what they've done, but it truly, as John says, the Spirit gives life. And one of the ways that our God rescues sinners is to leave them to themselves until they descend to a point of utter despondency and destitution and then see their true need. And you know, that's not just true of unbelievers. (laughs) That's true of believers sometimes when we backslide. God sometimes will leave us to ourselves until we see things for how they really are and we are humbled. And may we pray for our friends and family who are prodigal sisters and brothers and children, parents, and grandparents, that God would use their sin and their folly to drive them to the end of themselves, that through affliction or conviction or both, would, they would be led to repentance. And you know, it's good to remind, remind ourselves that just as, as terrible and lost as prodigals may seem, there's no one that's beyond God's grace. There's no one too vile or wicked. The prodigal here seems in a hopeless situation, but God brings him back The third, or sorry, the second application, number two, the Lord Jesus kindly welcomes sinners, freely pardoning them. The Lord Jesus kindly welcomes sinners, freely pardoning them. And we see in this parable a beautiful picture of the love of God towards broken, lost, and dead sinners. The father in the parable, because of the love he had for his son, Forgave him even before he returned home. He was ready at a moment's notice to jump up and run to his lost son and welcome him unconditionally into his family. And this is a wonderful picture of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He kindly welcomes sinners. Now, if you look at our text, the prodigal receives some gifts, some items as he's brought back into his father's house. He gets a a robe or a cloak, a ring for his hand, uh, shoes for his feet, and a fattened calf is slain in his honor. Now, many theologians have attempted to specify what these things are spiritually. Uh, They think the cloak is Christ's righteousness, or the ring is a seal of God's grace, or the shoes enabling him to walk in the light, or the fattened calf is seen as the sacrifice of Christ. Now, whether these specific interpretations were our Lord's intention, all these gifts are given to the prodigal after he is received by the Father, and they are honorable, and they are choice gifts. Do you see it? Can you imagine this? The filthy, muddy, dirty, wretched prodigal is given the best robe and a ring, shoes for his feet, and a fattened calf for a feast. And so it is with Christians who through the merits of Christ are declared righteous, adopted into the family of God, inherit the name of God, have access to the throne of grace. And Paul writes, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as we approach the sacrament later, consider the kindness and love of our Savior who freely pardons sinners like you and me and who has given us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places we who were far off God has drawn near. He has run to us and embraced us and kissed us. He has given us the best robe and a ring for our finger and shoes for our feet and a fattened calf for us to feast on. So let us be glad and rejoice in the Lord's provision. The third application. Number 3. There is great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. There is great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. If we look back at the other two parables that precede this parable, we see in the the parable of the lost son, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He speaks of a celebration. And then in the parable of the lost coin, the same thing. He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now in this parable, we see a great celebration at the deliverance of a sinner. There is great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. Consider the joy in heaven when someone is saved. We know there's joy even before the angels. That's not just some vague idea. Our Lord tells us that. Just think about it. Angels in the presence of God are singing until the courts of heaven are ringing with the wonderful grace that brings sinners into his kingdom. Think about your conversion. When you were saved, heaven rejoiced. The angels rejoiced. Our older brothers, that you were brought out of darkness and into light. I just imagine in Acts 2, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, it says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think of the joyful noise in heaven on that day, as so many were brought into the light And at the very end of days, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read John's description of the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters or the sound of thunder. And this is what they say. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. There is much joy over the conversion of lost sinners. And so we have seen the prodigal's descent into darkness, and the wonderful deliverance of the prodigal, the wonderful grace that he received. And through this picture of the prodigal's return, we saw how the Holy Spirit often uses affliction and conviction to draw sinners to repentance, that the Lord Jesus kindly welcomes sinners, and that this causes great joy even in heaven. Well, that's a great sermon, isn't it? Sin and grace, law and gospel, that's it, right? No, it's not. And many end the prodigal son at that point. But the next section is the most important part of the prodigal son. For Jesus addresses the heart attitude of those Pharisees who grumbled at his reception of lost sinners. And this is not pretty. And so our final last point, number three, self-righteousness exposed. Self-righteousness exposed. We see this in verse 25 to 32. In verse 25, the older brother is in the field, and he hears the noise of the party going on inside. And when he was told that it was the younger brother who had returned home, he was received by his father, and there was much celebration going on. His response was to be angry and to not go into the party. And this should remind us of those Pharisees in, back in verse 2 of this chapter. They grumbled at the fact that Jesus welcomed sinners. And now the older brother grumbles. He's angry at the fact that his father has welcomed his prodigal brother. Their anger at Jesus, forgiving sinners, showed that they did not understand grace. They thought themselves righteous. And they thought of the tax collectors and sinners, that they were unrighteous. They didn't deserve the father's favor. You see, the older brother viewed the father's grace in a very distorted way. He was angry at the thought of his brother, a great sinner, receiving so much forgiveness. And what this did, it exposed his heart. In his heart, he had a wrong view of grace. He thought he had to earn his father's favor He didn't see his father's kindness as loving. He saw it as foolish and naive and even insane. And then he says, or in verse 29, he says, I have served or slaved really for years. He was discontent this whole time serving his father, but now it comes to the surface in the light of much grace. He says, I have never disobeyed your command. And that's it. That's his heart. That's where he's at. He sees himself as righteous. He saw himself as good in his own eyes. He needed no repentance. And we know this is how the Pharisees viewed themselves. Luke, in Luke 18, just a few chapters later, will say that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. In verse 30, notice how the older brother speaks about his younger brother. He he doesn't call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. And then he adds, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? Now, those things were already known to the father. He's over-specifying. He's repeating something that is already known intentionally to make a point. He's trying to distance himself from his brother. He's that wicked sinner, and I'm over here, and I'm a righteous son. But the father... His response is not to get angry with the older son. He pleads with him. He says, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. But the older brother, instead of listening to his father and seeing the truth in his words, he pridefully closes his heart and stops his ears. As far as he knows, he has nothing. And there we see it, the spirit of the Pharisees. They were angry at the love and kindness of God. They thought that God should only show grace to those who deserved it. And as you're probably realizing, that's not grace. If grace depends on human performance, it's conditional, and it's not grace. It's not unmerited. It is merited favor at that point. And this parable closes with the father pleading with his son. In verse 32, he says, It is fitting, the Greek really should be, It is necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the deliverance of a lost person, a a prodigal son, demands celebration. But the older brother couldn't see it. He was blinded by his own pride. And so let's apply this. We have uh, three applications. The first application is this. Self-righteousness cannot understand grace Self righteousness cannot understand grace. To someone who's self righteous, grace doesn't make any sense. The prodigal son had committed great and grievous sin. Why was he being received with open arms? He didn't deserve that. It's not fair. How stupid of my father to be conned like that again. What about me? Notice this is all self focused. Self-righteousness distorts the grace of God into something that must be earned, and it magnifies the self above everything else. And there's a kind of bitter logic to the older son perspective. You can see this, and to that of the Pharisees. The prodigal, or the tax collectors, the sinners, they've sinned greatly. Their wicked deeds are public. Everyone knows what they've done. Why aren't they being reprimanded and punished? Why is Jesus welcoming sinners? But that's the whole point of grace, isn't it? Grace, as we heard this morning, is the unmerited favor of God to sinners. It is only by his grace that anyone is saved. No one, not you, not me, deserves God's grace. But the self-righteous person can't comprehend this truth. There's a great danger in misunderstanding or distorting Grace. Listen to this verse from Mormon scripture. It goes like this It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That directly contradicts scripture and the very essence of the gospel. What does Paul say? It's by grace you have been saved and not of works. But the religion of the older brother and the Pharisee, of many cults, and yes, Some who sit in pews of very good churches is of works-based salvation. And so we've seen that self-righteousness cannot understand grace. The second application is this. Self-righteous people are blind to their great need. Self-righteous people are blind to their great need. You see, this older brother in our parable, it reminds me of another parable that our Lord spoke Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray? The tax collector acknowledged his great need. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. He cried out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the Pharisee was thankful that he wasn't like that other man. I'm better than others. Great and obvious sinners whose sin is public to the eye. And then he listed all the things, all the religious duties that he had done. And this Pharisee greatly resembles the older brother in this parable because they're both representing the Pharisees. They're completely oblivious to their great need. We all like to shake our heads at the Pharisees and say, I'm glad we're not like them. But here are those words. Those are the words of the Pharisees. We as Christians living in the church may have more in common with the Pharisees than that of the prodigals and the sinners and the tax collectors, some of us. You see, when we start comparing ourselves to others and scorning them and looking down on them on the basis of performance or holiness or religious duties, we inherit the spirit of the Pharisees. We assume that we deserve grace because of what we have done and they don't deserve grace because of what they haven't done or the wicked deeds that they have done. Do we assume that anything we do as Christians is the basis for God accepting us? That's the spirit of self-righteousness. Be aware of your own need. The fact that nothing you did or are doing contributes to your justification. Instead, we must beat our breast and we must cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And when you become aware of your great need, there's only one thing for you to do. Run to the welcoming arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, for I am a great sinner, and he is a great savior. The third application, and our last application, is this, number three. Self-righteousness is often exposed by great displays of grace. Self-righteousness is often exposed by great displays of grace. We see this in our parable. The older, older brother's distorted view of grace was only exposed when something extraordinary happened, when great grace was shown to someone who was near to him. It was personal. It really got to him. And this exposed all kinds of nastiness within And this older brother is very unattractive. He's prideful, he's arrogant, he's selfish, he's unforgiving, he's unwilling to show grace to others. And we look at him and we may shake our heads. But I have to ask, is this us? This can be quite convicting. In our stubborn, sinful hearts, even as Christians, we can foster this spirit. This can be quite convicting, right? Right? What is our response when God shows a great measure of grace to someone we don't think deserves or is fit for that grace? What is our response? Are we uncomfortable with it? Do we shy away? Do we grumble? Are we even angry? Do we refuse to go into the party, someone else's party, when, someone has shown, when God has shown grace to them? Brothers and sisters, don't wait for a great display of grace. To uncover or expose the self-righteousness in your heart search your hearts and root this malady out one writer once asked a very searching question about this parable he said are our churches more full of younger or older brothers ask it another way does our church attract the same kind of people that jesus attracted or do we attract older brothers pharisees outwardly pious and orthodox people who don't understand their need and the beauty of God's grace. Beware the dangerous sin of self-righteousness. Remember that Jesus welcomes sinners and that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If we really feel that we are saved all because of grace, we will not be found acting or speaking or thinking like the older brother in this parable. And so, in conclusion, this parable remains unresolved. We don't know what happens with the older brother. It ends with the father pleading with him, but there's no response. And I think that Jesus left this parable unresolved because he wants us to ask ourselves, how would I respond? Are you like the older brother who refused to go into the party? Remember back in verse 2 when the Pharisees complained That Jesus welcomed or received sinners? Well, that complaint is actually good news, isn't it? That Jesus welcomes or receives sinners. Jesus exposed something about the Pharisees and about outwardly religious people in this parable. You see that there are obvious people who are sinners, prodigals who are welcomed into the church of God, but sometimes religious people are further away from the kingdom of God. Uh, Dale Roth Davis says, the far country may be in the church pew. But just as the father in the parable pleaded with his older brother, there is still hope for Pharisees. After hearing this parable, we might say, this man even receives Pharisees. Jesus beckons the Pharisees to forsake their stubborn hearts, to realize their need, and to come into the party. And you see, the point of all these parables in Luke 15 is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Only those who understand that they are lost, that they are without hope apart from the mercy of God, and receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, as is offered freely, in the gospel will be saved. And I'll close with reading one of the stanzas from our hymn we sung. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall, If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous sinners. Jesus came to call. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have fed us with your word. May your spirit bind it to our hearts, convicting us of sin, leading us to the cross, encouraging us to grow in grace. And, oh, gracious Father, many of us perhaps entertain unholy desires for the, for the far country, the pleasures of this world. May we see the deceitfulness of sin and keep sin far from our hearts, our minds, and our hands. And, Lord, in many ways we have sinned. We have been disobedient children. And so we plead with you, compassionate Father, forgive us of our sin through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who shows abundant grace to poor, wretched sinners like us. And thank you for saving us, Father, through the merits of Christ. And, Lord, may we celebrate your grace in our lives and the lives of others. And may we be thankful and grateful for everything you've done for us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.